Welcome back to the Queer Q. Thank you so much for joining us for season two, where we will be taking a deep dive on queer women on the screen and behind the screen. While season one heavily focused on transgressive gaze of new queer cinema, season two will be focusing on queer women that made waves in representation through explicit expression of queer desire and the reclamation of the feminine body from a cishet male gaze. Starting off our first episode, we will be be discussing one of the greatest filmmakers, Chantal Ackerman. While most know Ackerman for her 1975 masterpiece, Jeannie Dalmine, I'm going to totally butcher this, but Jean (laughs) Dielman, 23, Quiet to Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. Today at Queer Q, we will be discussing her first narrative feature, J2UL, as well as her filmography as a filmmaker. For viewers who don't know Ackerman's film, her f- films tend to be very about nothing. And, you know, I think that's a compliment to her as well. Um, you know, her films don't really say as much. So I think in today's episode, instead of like what we did in the past episodes where we take a deep dive on every scene of the film, we're kind of going to be taking a deep dive on Chantal Ackerman as a filmmaker herself. Um and so Ackerman was is a Belgian filmmaker. Uh, she's Jewish and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. And she's also a queer woman. But um, something to know about Ackerman is that she really hates labels. Um, she doesn't like to be labeled. She doesn't like to categorize her films either. So uh, today we will be talking about Je Tu Il El, or I, You, He, She, um, her first narrative feature, which we would consider has queer elements or could even be said to be a queer film, but Ackerman is very against that. She didn't want her film to be screened at a gay festival. She didn't want it to be even filmed at a Jewish festival. She just wanted to be screened at a film festival. Um, She was very adamant about not categorizing and labeling her films. And, you know, I stand by that 100%. Um, Ackerman was born on June 6, 1950 in Brussels, Um, She went to a Belgium film school, but then dropped out and moved to New York City for a while in 1971. And so for years, Ackerman has done extraordinary work and has been regarded highly in the feminist and avant-garde cinema scene. Um, And again, even though she rejects all these labels, I think it's important for us to see her influence um, in depicting the, the life of woman and how it pushed the boundaries of feminine desire being filmed and being put on the screen. You know, because we don't we we still don't see that a lot in Hollywood today, um, especially with queer feminine desire. Um, but something in Ackerman's films that is seen throughout, like one of her main themes throughout all of her films is this relationship she has with her mother and how deeply personal her films speak to her mother and um, even to herself. And in 2014, Ackerman's mother had died and her death left a great impact on Ackerman. Um, She made the documentary No Home Movie in 2015 in response to her mother's death, and it would be the last Ackerman film. It would be Ackerman's last film. Um, Because a year after her mother had passed, Ackerman committed suicide on October 5th, 2015 in Paris. And knowing a bit of her history, I think it's important to how we will be moving forward to discussing her films 
Yeah, you know, especially with her first feature, starring herself, directing herself in this role, and seeing a lot of the themes that we'll be discussing throughout this episode in regards to a lot of those recurring themes in her work. You know, we'll see that, especially directing herself in her first role and having those same themes that are discussed and um, conveyed in J2ELL. You know, we see that through so many more of her works that it, it definitely feels something that's very personal, something that's really drawn on her own experiences. It's like these films really speak to her experiences as a person and as an artist. And, you know, I, I can totally see, you know, just the way her life has just, just been, you know, lived out throughout history and, you know, especially her relationship with her mother, how profound that effect was. So it's, it's a tragic, but understandable story based off of a lot of her filmography. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, uh, it's not even just the narrative that we see these themes of isolation, depression, and detachment. It's also in her technical style. Um, Ackerman is her films are can be called a very hyper realistic film. Uh, she has a tendency to have these static shots that will hold on for so long. And um, I was watching a documentary called um, "I Don't Belong Here: The Cinema of Chantal Ackerman," and Ackerman was talking about her editing style, um, about how you know how Hollywood would cut because you need to get to the next scene, and she was saying how that feels too. Um, that feels like too much of an obligation. The next scene should be cut when, you know, you want to feel the cut, you want to feel the film and you want to like be able to sense that um, transition into the next scene. You don't want to just be forced to that next scene. You want to actually feel it. And so that's why we see these very long shots and, you know, um, we'll be discussing that in J2EL and her other films, um, this editing style, this tactic of, the static shot of this camera just fixed on this one um object or this one scene and not cutting because um Ackerman once her whole thing was I want you to feel the passage of cinema I think knowing that um learning that like how each cut and how each scene she wants to it feels like a breath to her a breath moving on to the next like an exhale in a way you know I think that's so extraordinary about her filmmaking that even though like um, I don't know about you, uh, that some of her films are very hard to watch because of the pacing, um, the agonizing pace that she really puts you through, you know, to the point where, you know, I fell asleep during J2EL. Um, but I think just knowing her thought process and her and her cinematic technique in these films and the purpose behind them, I find that extremely extraordinary extremely amazing and that is why she is considered one of the greatest european filmmakers or greatest filmmakers of the generation you know i completely agree with that because you know her films are a gauntlet to get through you know because j2ell it's a relatively short film it's under 90 minutes and then you compare mm -hmm. that to Jeannie dealman and that is almost four hours long and both of them mm -hmm. are marathons and you know i really feel like 
for the audience watching, it's not because of specifically what's going on in the film, but how the film makes the audience feel because they are suffocating films. These are films that really mostly put a lens on the audience more than the characters in these films. And that's, that was my own personal experience watching her filmography is that it was uncomfortable for me to watch because it really helped me with introspection of understanding why I'm feeling this way, what's resonating with me and these films. And it really goes to that Mm -hmm. hyper-realistic style that you had mentioned earlier, is that so much of it is just so, it it, it resonates so deeply because that's Mm -hmm. the type of like everyday experience that so many people experience. You know, it might not be as mundane as Jeannie Dealman, but we still feel Mm -hmm. those effects, you know, of those themes of feeling isolated, of feeling like there's, that there's nothing more to our lives, you know? And I think it, it really resonates this year specifically in particular because Mm of all of the hardships that we faced, especially here in this country, but, you know, globally and, you know, I, I think that's why it was so hard to watch these films because it, it really has you question what your life is at this moment. And, it, you know, it's not, it's not easy. It's definitely not an easy mm-hmm. process. And it's definitely something where I appreciate the themes because of that type of, of that type of effect that they have. And so Mm -hmm. I enjoyed them, but at the same time, they made me very uncomfortable. They were rewarding, but uh, they're, they're a gauntlet to get through. Like I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially John Dealman, I think is a gauntlet to get through, Mm -hmm. um, because of its length and because, um, you know, it's a very, it's, it's, I, I do agree. It's her best, or it's uh, considered one of the masterpieces out of all of her filmography, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you'll hear a lot of critics say. Um, however, I would strongly suggest watching Meeting of Anna or Le, I'm going to butcher this, Le Rendezvous de Anna. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that film really, to me, emulates at least a lot what we're going through and the isolation and the exhaustion we're feeling with life right now. Um, I think that film perfectly captured it. And, you know, that was the one film that out of all of her filmography um, that really made me cry besides her last film. Um, But Meeting of Anna, I think, is such an important film to watch right now. And it's also a semi-autobiographical film um, mm-hmm. on Chantal Ackerman, which I think, you know, it, it's a perfect way to understand what Ackerman was going through that time at the height of her career as, um, an avant-garde, uh, feminist filmmaker or what have mm-hmm. you, you know, like, and how she was feeling with all the pressures of, um, life and all those labels and, you know, struggling with depression and uh, this emotional and physical detachment, um, in life. I think Meeting with Anna is a great film to really get inside the mind of Ackerman. Um, and it's, to me, I think it's one of her most stylistic films mm-hmm. um, only because there's so many shots of, you know, the city of the subway of um, 
the hotel like I, I you can really see the art in in this film of how she frames her shot and how she chooses them you can see that in all of her films i just personally like it in meeting anna the best and you know we are going to be talking about j2ll soon it's just i wanted to point out from j2ll from to meeting of anna you know her style has drastically like it's just exploded mm-hmm. and in such a beautiful way. And, you know, and that's why J2L is so important because you see the beginnings of her um, cinematic and visual style. Um, and then you just see it dispersed into Jean Diomen and then meeting Anna and how, how she has grown as an artist and so beautifully and so wonderfully. I completely agree with that. I know we were talking about this before because um, I had just recently watched Meeting of Anna uh, Monday uh, Monday afternoon. So it was just really recently, just a couple of days ago, and it was my first time watching it. And it was after watching both Jeannie Dealman and J2LL. And I completely agree. It's It was beautiful to watch that progression of her style and the themes that run through her work and, you know, really seeing her come into her style and really honing in on that style and the symbolism of, you know, her stylistic choices when it came to meeting Havana, you know, because, you know, something that I noticed is there were so many extended shots in meeting Havana and it it reminded me of just, you know, how much bustling life there is. And it it was such a great contrast, you know, that all of these things are going on, all of these people are living their lives. And, you know, it's, and, you know, it's co-occurring with Anna's progression in this journey of her traveling and showing her new film throughout um, Belgium and, I forget if she travels throughout any other countries in Europe, but it's, it's mostly contra- um, contained to Belgium and, mm-hmm. you know, going to how it resonates with us today, you know, this, this film came out decades ago, you know, decades ago. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I feel like it resonates so much that and Jeannie Dealman, because so many of us have been stuck in our houses, just like Jeannie Dealman and having to go through the same routines. But with meeting of Anna, you know, it's like globally, we're so much more connected today than we were decades ago when meeting of Anna came out. And still, even though we're so much more connected and you see that theme of that connection with people in Meeting of Anna, mm-hmm. that, you know, she's constantly meeting new people and they're constantly unloading on her. It's like she's the sounding board for all these people taking all of, you know, their confessions and then, you know, mm-hmm. having to live with them. And it's it's something that I feel like as an artist Ackerman has done with her entire career is, you know, really having to listen to people and, you know, understanding them and using that understanding for her films. But, you know, what we notice is that it's so lonely because she, Mm -hmm. it's so one-sided. She's listening to all of these individuals and yet there's nothing that she's able to give in return. You know, it's, there's, even mm-hmm. though there's this type of connection, there's nothing more below the surface when it comes to that. There's, there's not, mm-hmm. it's not as great of a connection as it appears to be. And I feel like that's something that a lot of us are experiencing today, that even though we're more connected than ever, 
we're still not able to have those deeper connections going beyond the surface of really being able to have something meaningful. And I feel like that yeah. that was just so beautifully portrayed in Meeting of Anna. And what was interesting though, we do have a moment in Meeting of Anna where she, where she is, where she's the one who's speaking instead of people speaking to her. We do have a, um, a scene where it is a meaningful moment, um, in my opinion, and that's a scene with her mother in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what what you'll notice in a lot of Ackerman's film, as I said before, is that, you know, her mother is like the heart of a, of her films. Mm-hmm. You know, she really speaks to or against or for her mother and her life through her films. And, you know, in Meeting of Anna, we get this moment of these two characters um, where they meet again. And I think, you know, um, Anne or Anna is like, on the platform she sees her mom and she has this genuine smile that you know that doesn't seem forced or faked um that we've seen in her other reactions uh, interactions throughout that film and you know and then we get to the hotel and like they're sleeping next to each other and like um Anna reveals how she fell in love with a woman right and to me it's like out of all the entire film you know you have other people speaking to her telling their telling her about their life and how they're tired or whatever. And you have this moment where she's, she's able to speak to someone close to her, this meaningful moment and like tell her mother that, you know, she had a lesbian lover and how she was actually in love and like how she fell in love with men, but she didn't love them as we saw with, uh, as we saw in the first scene with that guy Heinrich. Um, and you know how she met this woman and fell in love with her. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, you know, a really, emotional and a powerful scene and you can see the impact of you know of Ackerman's relationship with her mother and how close they are and you know this is where we would say this is where we see the queer you know the queer lens being played um uh but like because I was watching the documentary um I don't belong anywhere the cinema of Chantal Ackerman and apparently um when medium Anna was screened it was booed at the film festival uh, to the point where um, Ackerman and the actress, I can't remember her name, the main actress in Meeting of Anna had to hide under a reporter's trench coat and run out. Wow. And yeah. And I think because like, um, as was said, like Ackerman's films during this time was very hard to watch, you know, for some people because, you know, the display of the feminine body, the display of queer desire mm-hmm. um, on the screen wasn't, accepted during this time still you know and it still isn't today um but you know it's obviously i don't think you'll get booed for a scene like that um but it just shows you how powerful um ackerman's films are in depicting you know feminine desire and queer desire that a lot of films just weren't doing at that time or weren't doing in a serious and artistic way you know what I mean? I agree. And I think that's why we decided to discuss this film first. It's the first episode of the second season because Ackerman really paved the way to really reclaiming the the feminine body, the feminine identity, the queer feminine body and identity. And, you know, it makes sense that her work was booed you know, I'm assuming from a mostly male critical gaze, 
because, Mm -hmm. you know, she's reclaiming that this is something that they can no longer state claim to. And, you know, even though so many male directors and non-queer male directors who are directing these films with female bodies, you know, they, it still is something that occurs today. We've seen that through the 20th and 21st century still, but she really was able to pave the way to say, okay, we should reclaim this. Like this is our fucking right here to reclaim our identity and our bodies. And she really paved the way for a lot of the, the filmmakers and films that we're going to be discussing throughout this season to really have that ability to do that, you know, looking to Mm -hmm. Ackerman, it really was this gateway to being able to create all of this queer feminine content in film that was so desperately Mm -hmm. needed that was removed from the male and typically heterosexual male gaze and that type of filmmaking. And I think it's, I think it's the perfect segue into discussing J2 Ulel because I think we see that greatly in this film and that's like, that's the reason why we chose this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, J2 Ulel is her first uh, narrative feature. It's shot on black and white. I think it's 16 millimeter film. That's what Criterion said. But then also Chantal Ackerman in her in the documentary herself, she said it was 35 millimeter film. So that's I'm not sure about that <laughs> on the specifics of that. But um, nevertheless, it's a beautiful, beautifully shot film, and it's separated into three parts. Um, I read somewhere um, the three parts are called. The first part is time of subjectivity, where it's, you know, we get just Ackerman, who, Ackerman who's starring in the film, and she's in this apartment and this bleak apartment, um, and she's eating a bag of sugar, and <laughs> she's just wandering naked in her room, right? Um, so that's the first part of this film. And then the second part would be the time of reportage, um, where Ackerman meets this truck driver who picks her up and that's why it's called he or like the respective english title i you he she um so this section will be about him Mm -hmm. in a way her relationship and her encounter with him and then we get to the third part where it's a time of relationship uh where we see ackerman arriving to a former lover a former ex uh female former lover i don't know why i just butchered that sentence um (laughs) but yeah she 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 arrives at her ex-apartment and we get a very long sexual scene um all the way to the end of the film of their love making mm-hmm. right and um that's the scene that we probably will be discussing more heavily yeah. on um just because um i think that's where we see um the reclaiming of the feminine body and queer desire um in this act mm-hmm. but um going back to um the first two scenes because i think there's a lot to be said there too um the first scene it's a very mundane and mundane scene of just her with scattered papers um eating sugar and you know it's like nothing was really going on um happening in these scenes and but i think that's you know that's what we're gonna see in a lot of her films and that's a theme it's that you know she tends to have these very microscopic uh everyday um hyper realistic shots of women um doing things that you know cinema just wouldn't do so she's pushing the boundary already by just having the scene of uh, this protagonist just moving the mattress around you know into different parts of the room 
you know, and just eating a bag of sugar, spilling the bag of sugar. And, you know, it's a very, it's something you don't see in cinema because, or in films, because one, it's not interesting because nothing's really happening there. But then at the same time, because of this, you are able to look kind of like, because it's so hyper-realistic, I think you can look at everything that's in the scene. Like you can look at what's beneath the scene more because you're stuck on this shot for so long of just Ackerman. We're not spoon fed. We're literally not spoon fed information or like um, an analysis that Ackerman wants. We are just given the opportunity to feel this frame, to feel these cuts, to feel these moments and make our own interpretation of what it means beneath it. I definitely agree that this beginning section is definitely the the hardest to get into. You know, we're just mm-hmm. focusing on this like very suffocated scene in this tiny apartment that Ackerman is in. And she is like what I mostly gathered from this, like other than her, you know, just being very bored and, you know, feeling very isolated in this room in her apartment is that there's like this, this deep desire, this deep hunger, you know, like the, the continuous Mm -hmm. eating of sugar. It's like, first of all, you know, I have never ever heard or seen anyone eat sugar, (laughs) like right out of the bag and (laughs) that much sugar, I would probably just be vomiting if I was eating that much sugar I was like oh wow that is so much but I loved it you know it was it was so bizarre but it was so relatable and I thought it really hit that theme of that that type of desire and hunger for something that you know a lot of us experience when we're in that type of situation of, you know, not feeling fulfilled and not being able to really get out and do what we want, you know, wanting something more than what we're experiencing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really did enjoy comically, you know, but also on a deeper level of really that, that resonating with that, that desire of her eating all of that sugar And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I feel like all of us at some point in time have just like rearranged furniture just because, you know, something doesn't feel right. You know, it's like everything feels so trapped that we're trying to find any type of way to, you know, give us more space. And, Mm -hmm. you know, also her walking around naked and, you know, looking outside the window, it's, it's very exhibitionist the way that she does it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I loved it on two different levels. First of all, it's like there was this nice like liberation, you know, this was another way of her to, you know, have some have some more space, you know, really, you know, experience that desire on such a, you know, primal level of being fully nude and, you know, owning that space with her body. But also because, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at the themes of, you know, female identity and female, the female body, you know, it's like, she's putting herself on full display and there's nothing sexual about it. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's a sexuality to it because of, you know, her desire and her hunger for, for something, but Mm -hmm. it's also very non-sexual because she's just putting her body on display. Like this is a, a feminine body, you know, it's, obviously dangerous to a lot of men, you know, in the way that she portrays it. And I love that she does it because it's, it's so transgressive and confrontational the way that 
the way that she portrays herself nude. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely loved that she did that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that first section is a little hard to get into, but really watching it. And this was the second time watching it for me and, Mm -hmm. you know, really watching it and thinking, you know, behind the motivations, you know, because it is so sparse, we're not spoon fed, you know, the plot, the narrative, like you were mentioning earlier, that we really can delve into the motivations behind her actions. And it, it really mm-hmm. reveals a lot in ourselves of why we do those same actions, because it is so hyper-realistic. It's like, it's it's a great mirror to, you know, why we do some of the things that we do when we really take the time to understand it from someone else's perspective. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I felt about that first section. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I definitely like what you were saying about um, her body not being sexualized or like it was kind of like to me, like her just wandering around naked was it was a to me it was another way of kind of reclaiming the feminine body, mm-hmm. reclaiming the female body um, from being this object to be sexualized of being this other thing to lust for. It was just it was part of her everyday mundane life and you know, it wasn't this hypersexualized moment that we see in the 70s exploitation era, you know, mm-hmm. it was just her body. And I really did love that, um, that she showed that. Yeah. And honestly, anyone who watches this section and they're like totally into it, that and you haven't seen Jeannie Dillman, please watch that because mm-hmm. you will absolutely love it if you are yeah. totally digging the section, this first section of the yeah. film. Oh yeah, the, this first section is, it will really go into Jeannie Dillman about that kind of obsessive routine, right? Mm-hmm. Just like moving around the room and um, about with nothing happening. You know, but Jean Dielman is, you know, the way that movie is structured is really fascinating, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and with everything between Jean Dielman and Jetu Il, you know, the third act is where shit happens. Yeah. So we should probably kind of breeze through that second section so that we can yeah. talk about the third section. Okay. So the second section. So basically, the end of the first section ends off with... Um, Ackerman going you know the snow has the snow stopped and it's melted away and you know and then she leaves her room and to me uh, it was also saying because you know she's in this moment of isolation um in her room in the first act which is why it's called I um this you know time of subjectivity and then you know now she's moving she's leaving the apartment and to me it's like in a way, it was like kind of signaling for her to try to go make attachments or try to make a connection again to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see this long shot of the road and cars passing by. And I think it's Ackerman, who's like a very tiny shot of just like waiting on the road. Mm-hmm. And she gets picked up by this truck driver. And so in this section, it's kind of all about her relationship or her encounter, her encounter with this man. Mm-hmm. Right. Um there's not much that really goes on in the scene to me either. Um, there's a lot of, um, it, it, this scene reminded me a lot of meeting of Anna, uh-huh. you know, uh, the brief encounter she meets with men and how they're just talking about their lives, their experiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talks about his domestic and sexual life to her. Um, but I think the important part of this, uh, the second part for us to nitpick at, to analyze is a scene where she gives him a hand job. Yes. Yeah, so I absolutely love the way that Ackerman filmed that. And mm-hmm. 
you know, it's because it, it was so non-sexual, you know, it's focusing on mm-hmm. this man giving directions. It's very, you know, it's not sexy the way that he's instructing her on how to give him a hand job. And mm-hmm. even, even his orgasm, it's so lackluster, you know, his, his face is so lackluster. <laughs> and I love mm-hmm. that it focuses just up above him instead of sexualizing and sexualizing her doing the act because you know that that's not the point uh, it's not supposed mm-hmm. to titillate you know it's not something to arouse a male audience you know like that's mm-hmm. that's typically that type of scene would achieve that but the way that Ackerman filmed that was like sorry sorry guys but you know this is not gonna turn you on like it it gives her so much more power and control over the situation, the way that she films it, even though Mm -hmm. the man in the situation is the one telling her what to do. She's still the one who's in control of the situation. And, you know, she's not Mm -hmm. responding vocally, you know, she's just doing this because, you know, it's an experience, you know, that that's, that's what it felt like to me. It was an experience, but she's making such a statement with the way that she films it, that, you know, it's, it's focusing even though the shot is focused on him, it's not about, you know, the sexual, the sexuality of the situation. Like it's, it definitely takes away a lot of the sexuality between her and this man, especially when we compare it to the sexual encounter she has with her ex in the third part mm-hmm. of the film. So what did you think of mm-hmm. that scene? I, um, I really liked the, I agree. I like the, camera work and how she set up because i was just going to say how if you notice it's ackerman's off to the side we don't even see her we don't even see her hand we don't get any verbal cues from what she's doing mm-hmm. right and everything's shot in the dark versus when we go into the next scene you know you see ackerman fully in this um engaging with this woman so to me the hand job scene i actually felt that it felt very detached and it mm-hmm. felt very cold and clinical in a way, especially with the way he was giving instructions, you know, if I agree, it felt like an experiment for Ackerman um, to be doing this, you know, um, and th- because she wasn't framed in the shot and because it was so darkly lit, it just felt like a cold detachment. Well, I like that. I completely agree. You definitely articulated that because that mm-hmm. that's definitely how I felt, too, you know, that, you know, there was just nothing sexual about it. You know, it was Mm -hmm. very cold and clinical and like you were saying, and that there was really no pleasure that was received out of it. It was just like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll do this just because I want to see what it's like, you know, but Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't necessarily make it an enjoyable experience. Yeah. And then, but then the scene after this, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because sometimes I get the scenes jumbled up. Isn't it that they're in the restroom and she's watching him shave? Yeah, that was like the last scene between the <laughs> two of them is that he's yeah. just shaving. And it's it's kind of like she's marveling at him, you know, just mm-hmm. really enjoying watching him shave his face. And that was one mm-hmm. scene that I, I didn't particularly understand or, you mm-hmm. know, really get the purpose of behind that scene. Um, so I... You know, that that kind of breezed by, you know, because I was really looking yeah. for because I knew after this was when she traveled and went to meet her ex. But, you know, I, mm-hmm. I still was very perplexed by the scene of watching him shave. It, it was kind of funny, you know, just her just yeah. her visual reaction to watching him. It, it was kind mm-hmm. of like a 
you know, childlike wonderment of watching like a father, you know, shave his mm-hmm. face. Yeah. And so, okay, now that now that I'm like stewing on it and like thinking about it a little bit more about the structure, I guess it because uh, this section is like seen as time of reportage, right? I guess it makes sense, like how we're talking about how she, especially with the hand job scene, how she feels so detached and pulled back. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if any, if anything, she's kind of taking this voyeuristic um, uh, stance, or like she's the one watching in on him, you know. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know it makes sense of why when we get the hand job scene, we don't see her because this section is about her interpretation of him, of her watching him, mm-hmm. you know, and and then I guess that's exemplified in the next scene after the handjob scene of in that restroom where she's watching him shave you know and it goes back to like the dialogue where she says like you know i'm marveling at his head or something like that i don't mm-hmm. remember their exact words um so i guess that makes sense and because then we get into the next scene where it's like time of relationship where we get both of them together um in the shot versus um in the first it's just ackerman and the second it's mainly on this guy who i'm sorry don't remember the actor's name and then in third we just get both ackerman and her ex yeah so going back to that second scene so you know something that i i have been thinking about and i really like the way that you put it as you know this type of voyeuristic of her observing this man you know like a case study and it's something mm-hmm. where you know the audience is very voyeuristic towards her in this first section and then she mm-hmm. takes on the voyeuristic role in the second section And this theme of voyeurism is something that we see in her other works, especially Jeannie um, Dealman, because, Mm -hmm. you know, it turns into a voyeuristic type of exhibition of watching this character in that film, you know, through her daily mundane routine every day and how that shifts. And the audience Mm -hmm. definitely feels, you know, very rear window-esque of, being a voyeur and watching these characters and then she becomes the voyeur in the second section. Um, so that, you know, I, I love that you saw it that way because that makes a lot of sense with a lot of her, her work that we see a lot of the themes Mm -hmm. in her work. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I also loved the second section and how you were relating it to meeting, meeting of Anna, because, you know, these these very shallow connections like there isn't a deep connection between her and this man that she that she has and it's the same with Anna's character with a lot of the other men that she meets and mm-hmm. I, I think it's a huge trend especially with her and her characters interacting with men that they're the ones that are always constantly speaking that you know either her Ackerman as character or the character that she's directing in these films it's like they don't get a word in edgewise with these men. It's like they, they have to listen to these men because they dominate the conversation. And I think it really speaks so Mm -hmm. much to, you know, Ackerman's view on how men act in these certain situations. And I'm I'm pretty sure from her own experience too. Mm -hmm. And it really brings into this, you know, this questioning, this interrogation of, you know, masculinity and male identity and how much it dominates throughout history. It felt very much like a documentary this yeah. section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um it goes back to uh Ackerman saying how you know, she's also a documentarian. She made a lot of documentaries. Um, um, but uh the whole point is that she really um Ackerman really infuses this documentary style as well in her films, mm-hmm. where that's why this section felt like it's called time of reportage because she's documenting 
um, this guy's his his life on the road. Um, but then you know we move on to the next scene where you know I I find it I found it really jarring because I wasn't expecting when the first time I watched it I didn't expect that shift because there was mm-hmm. no to me there was no really gradual transition but you know Ackerman's an avant-garde filmmaker so you don't really expect um the continuity or like linear like the typical conventions of film right um but we get to this next scene where she meets her ex-lover and you know they have this whole thing where she's making her a peanut butter sandwich right and then they engage in a sexual scene and yeah like going back to how hunger was in the first section of her like eating the bag of sugar you know um so would you say like the first section is her hunger for connection and this last section is his hunger to be with this woman yeah you know that's that's a good way of of putting it is that is that how you would Mm -hmm. see it yeah that's to to be honest yeah that's how i was seeing it Um, yeah and so you know like that's why when she was getting when she had the sandwich and she was eating it it was this hunger for her desire for this relationship with this woman you know um and you know um we move on into they get into this it's a very long take sex scene and to me again contrasting it from the second act with the with the guy and the hand job, this scene was, it's a full, like the camera's pulled back and you, it's a full body scene. It's a long shot, right? You mm-hmm. see everything, right? It's not like, it's not darkly lit. It's actually, it's beautifully lit. And you see both women engaging in this um, playful and very um, sexual and passionate um, encounter with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, I really enjoyed how it was framed because um, I thought it was it was authentic to me. It felt more authentic versus, you know, if, if you were watching a typical sex sex exploitation movie of this era or a mainstream film, you'd get a cut to maybe a boob or you'll get a cut to in between the legs. You know, you would get all these random close up shots, you know, mm. um, but this one felt very pulled back and more observing and felt more authentic and letting the moment to actually happen between these two women naturally and it wasn't Mm -hmm. this you know seedy gaze exactly that's exactly how i felt about it too and i thought you know like everything's on display you know i do love how the lighting you know there was nothing that was you know like romantically lit, you know, it just everything is there to see. There's no hiding in the scene. And it really puts the viewer, you know, in this place where they're forced to watch the scene and to really, you know, have this reckoning with their gaze when it comes to the female body. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a beautiful, beautifully choreographed scene, but it was also very awkward, you know, you know, mm-hmm. speaking to that authenticity that you were, that you're saying, I totally agree with that. It's very authentic because there was some awkwardness, you know, there's no, you know, score, like there's no score throughout this entire film, but there's no, you know, like romantic score that's occurring that usually occurs between, you know, 
uh, queer women's sex scenes. You know, there isn't those close-up shots that are meant to titillate, like you were mentioning. Like, you know, the sounds that we hear are, you know, bodies coming together, which, you know, is not the most pleasant sound. And, you know, some of their breathing, which isn't, you know, very aroused breathing, not very arousing to the person watching, but, you know, just Mm -hmm. like very typical breathing of two people who, you know, are tussling together, you know, sharing their bodies together. And so it it felt very real. And Mm -hmm. I love that it wasn't meant to titillate. It was also in a way, mostly to make, you know, the viewer uncomfortable, depending on how they typically view you know, a female body and a queer woman's body, you know, especially when we look at what you're mentioning with the exploitation films of, you know, specifically queer women and their sex scenes or how women are portrayed in sex scenes from the male gaze and from a male filmmaker Mm -hmm. is that a lot of people who are expecting that, who, you know, are really titillated by that, they're not going to be from this. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is the ultimate point, you know, besides, you know, being able to show this authentic queer woman sex scene that was definitely not seen at the time and this in this type mm-hmm. of shot is that, you know, through this type of shot of these two bodies together and its commentary on the male gaze and the male filmmaker of how women are normally shot in these types of scenes is, you know, something that you'll definitely be diving into more Um, Mm -hmm. in response but really that reclamation of the the queer female body the female body in general and that identity because Mm -hmm. of that yeah I definitely agree I also love how you were talking about the sound how there's no uh, score or romantic music in it and it's just the you know the rustling of the sheets and their um just their breathing and I think that really again that shows the hype it kind of concretes us into this moment and it's just a very really hyper realistic focus on these two women that's just a natural thing that's happening and again yeah because it's reclaiming the feminine desire it's reclaiming the female body um away from the male gaze because one you know we're seeing these women uh these two queer women just engaging in this passion and sexual um kind of foreplay um and we don't get this whole male gazy camera cut to like for instance, um, I thought about uh blue is the warmest color mm-hmm. um when I saw the scene the first time. Because everyone talks about I, I compared it because blue is the warmest color is this really extended um sex scene that's very to me it was very uh male gazy, uh mm-hmm. with the how the camera was uh portraying the sex scene versus where we see Chantal Ackerman portraying um, this scene between her and this woman. You know, there's more, there's also a more authorship because Chantal Ackerman is the queer woman behind the screen and in front of the screen, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to juxtapose the themes when it comes to the way Ackerman shot this scene versus, um, oh gosh, I forget who directed Blue is the Warmest Color. Let me look it up real fast. 
but you know, it's completely different, you know, and they're both extended mm-hmm. love scenes between two women, but mm-hmm. the way that they're shot is so, so completely different. And mm-hmm. it has to do with this inauthentic male gaze when looking at two queer women compared to, like you said, Ackerman, who is a queer woman who really has this type of, you know, authenticity and the way that she's shooting this because of her identity and Mm -hmm. her putting herself into the scene, you know, drawing on, you know, her experiences as a queer woman, as a woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this this type of, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but gosh, no, forget it. I'm going to look up blue is the warmest color. (laughs) And go for it. It was directed Um, by, oh gosh, I cannot pronounce Abdelatif Kachiche, I believe is, mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah, and there's also issues on that set with um how he treated both of the actors too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, um, with J two L, the last scene is so important because, and the reason why we're discussing it because this is a theme we're going to be discussing, um, in season two with all our films because it reclaims you know feminine desire and it puts, uh, feminine queer desire at the forefront, um, unapologetically, um, before us, you know, versus. And it's not meant to, it's kind of meant for just queer women. It's just for women, you know, this desire and the sexuality. And it's not meant to titillate um, the mainstream cishet male gaze, you know. Um, so that's why we chose this film, because specifically of this scene and specifically because of Chantal Ackerman, who is a queer filmmaker, even though, you know, again, she doesn't like labels. Um, but, you know, uh, because of her work in representing uh the lives of women and their desire this everyday desire that hollywood or um, mainstream films want to hide away you know because oh if a woman desires sex if she has sexual desires queer desires she's a demon right and ackerman completely throws that out the window and she pushes uh the boundaries with her with her filmmaking techniques and with this scene by showing this reclamation of the queer body We're so excited that everyone has joined us to listen to our second season. Thank you for coming back. Thank you, new listeners. We're so excited to start this next journey with all of you. And I'm excited to discuss all these films with you, Lena. And stay tuned for next week because, well, next time, because we will be discussing Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman. Yes, thank you and stay queer.